Hello and welcome to High Tea Obsessed. I'm your host, Thomas Boomhauer, and today, for this very special episode about the shark attacks of 1916, I'm actually, you know, I'm flying solo because my laptop's out here, it's dying, it's on its way out, and technical difficulties make it difficult to edit things, which is why I actually haven't been posting any episodes lately. Now, that said, um, you know, we got out. We've been in the lab, we've been out here working on stuff, so we do have some premium content planned for everybody once we resume recording regularly, and I do have another episode coming up soon. I actually have an interview coming up, so I'm excited to share that one with you guys. Um, So yeah, that's where I've been, that's what's going on, and I have a new laptop coming, and I'll be able to do video editing, I'll be able to edit the audio in a much better way. So I'm really excited, and I'm going to have some really good stuff coming. And, you know, Chris and Mike, they're going to be out here with me. They'll be back. They'll be on the program, and hopefully we'll get some other guests as well. The hardest thing to do is to add the musical interludes, which I don't really need anyway, in the intro and outro music. So if in this episode or future episodes those things don't appear, now you know why. And once the new laptop comes late February, early March... We'll get back out here. We'll be professional once again. It's going to be sick. It's going to be great. So thank you for listening, and I'll catch you on the other side of the break. So the shark attacks of 1916 are sort of like the autogram of shark attacks because they got our whole obsession with sharks started, but most people don't really know that they happened. Americans are obsessed with sharks. I don't know if that's true. Other places, like maybe Canadians, maybe Germans, uh, maybe the Dutch are obsessed with sharks. But I do know that Americans are. And a lot of people think that this obsession started with the movie Jaws in 1975. But what a lot of people don't realize is that Jaws is actually based on a book. And that the book, in turn, was actually based on a series of just terrible shark attacks that occurred over the course of 12 days in New Jersey during uh, the early part of July 1916. So the first time that I remember hearing about these attacks was uh, probably during middle school, during Shark Week, when Discovery Channel ran a special about them. And then my interest was renewed when I was browsing Barnes & Noble, and I was checking out their uh, Goodreads for the Beach section and saw... Uh, Close to Shore, which is a book about these shark attacks, literally on their beach read set. Now, I don't know, like that just feels like a yikes for me, because personally, I wouldn't want to read about shark attacks while I'm at the beach, especially since I don't really like to read at the beach anyway, because, you know, the sun is very bright on the pages, it hurts my eyes, sand gets in the books, it's just not what you want. I like to go to the beach to swim, maybe make a sand castle actually definitely made a sandcastle, and then that's about it. Anyway, that's not what this is about. This is about the year 1916, shark attacks going on. So, July 1916 finds the eastern United States trapped in the grip of just an absolutely fearsome heat wave 
And this is an era without air conditioning at all. I don't know if there were fans yet, but I don't imagine that it was a commonplace thing to have fans. Additionally, there's this huge outbreak of polio that year. And so people were going to the beaches to seek healing from polio and also just to relieve the symptoms of polio uh, in the water. So we got huge crowds from those two things. And so thousands of people are flooding the beaches of New Jersey. And they're wearing their weird 1916 beach outfits. It's not great. No one's that into it. But the heat wave is so intense that the ocean is hotter than uh, is normal, which means that sharks are further north than was usual for the time. And that's actually pretty commonplace now for sharks to be further north than they used to be because of climate change and just global warming in general. And so we see certain species of sharks and also like orca whales having access to regions that they didn't before which is messing up the ecosystems of these places, because now we have apex predators in places that they don't uh, necessarily belong. Back to the shark attacks. So we got sharks close to the shore, and we have people splashing all about in the water, which is, of course, attracting the attention of the sharks. And then on top of this, there are no like safety nettings in place. There's not people like watching for sharks. There's no you know, Cape Cod shark tracker. There's no Wildwood shark tracker. And the general public just didn't know that sharks would pose a danger because marine biologists at the time didn't know that sharks would pose uh, a danger. And we'll get to that later, but it's kind of wild to think about. So the first attack occurred on July 1st. Uh, This guy named Charles Van Sant was at uh, Beach Haven in New Jersey with his family, and they were there to celebrate Independence Day. Charles was 25. He was a pretty good swimmer. So, uh, after his family got set up in the hotel, they go down to the beach, and Charles goes out there, and he swims to about 50 yards out, and he is trying to get this dog that was there to come out and swim with him, and so he's focused on that, and he doesn't notice what everyone on the beach notices, which is a black mass coming towards him. They're shouting to him, they say, get out of the water, get out of the water, but he is so focused on the dog that he doesn't hear them, he's just calling to it. And then suddenly his calls for the dog turn into shrieks of horror and pain as the shark grabs hold of him. And so the Andre lifeguard runs out there and two other guys rush out and they form a human chain. And they, the lifeguard grabs Van Sant and they're pulling him in. But all the while the shark is attached to his legs. And um, the shark is held, holding on until literally its belly is scraping against the sand. And it's just in too shallow for it to hold on anymore. And then it lets go and swims back out. Pull Charles out and his legs are missing. And so obviously, you know, it's 1916. They can't rush him to the hospital. Uh, There's not like great ambulances if there are any. And so he dies in the hospital of blood loss. And, you know, it's this crazy, horrible story. It appears on page 18 of the New York Times. And that's because the uh, shark attack thing wasn't treated as a serious issue yet. And uh, polio just gripped the headlines still. So uh, despite the fact that there were a bunch of witnesses there, nobody was able to estimate the size of the shark, which is kind of interesting. So five days later, on July 6th, this other Charles named Charles Bruder decides to go for a swim while on his lunch break. And he works as a bellhop at the Essex and Sussex Hotel in Spring Lake, New Jersey, which is about 45 miles north of the first attack. 
This distance is important important because after the first attack, hotels in the area of the uh, Beach Haven area uh, put safety netting and had other precautions against shark attacks in place. But um, the Essex and Sussex Hotel were 45 miles away, so it didn't have these same precautions. So uh, Bruder goes out there, and he's a strong swimmer, so he goes out a lot further than most beachgoers at the time went, apparently. He's so far out that when the shark attacks him, uh, witnesses on the shore don't know what's going on, and this lady goes up, and he, uh, after hearing him scream, and goes up to the lifeguards, she says, a man is out there and his red canoe capsized. And she said that because there was so much blood in the water that all she could see was the red. And so the lifeguards are out there on their lifeboat, just thinking that um, they're going out there to save a guy who doesn't really need to be saved because he can just drive the canoe. They did it out there and dragged him up and realized he's missing his legs and he must have been attacked by a shark. And so they start frantically paddling back to shore. But by the time they get there, he already, he already died. And then apparently, and this is according to the New York Times, because this time it makes the front page, uh, apparently there were hundreds of witnesses to the attack, and women were fainting and vomiting and just passing out left and right, which they attributed to the horror of the attack, which is possibly true. But also, you, you gotta imagine that they weren't hydrating very well, and it's in a crazy heat wave, and they're wearing crazy dresses, and that they're also wearing, uh, they're covered head to toe even when they are in their beach garb. So, you know, probably dehydration attributed to the passing out and the vomiting. Like I said before, during this time, the general public didn't realize that sharks could be dangerous. And this is especially true of sharks in uh, places north of the Carolinas specifically. They just thought that sharks in northern waters were more docile and were basically scavengers, that they would only feed on dead things. And that if you got in their way while they were eating, or if you captured one in a net, or were attacking a shark, then in that case, yes, they would attack you. But in general, uh, worst case, you'd get bitten by a shark, and that they wouldn't eat your legs, which had happened to the uh, two victims so far. This belief was so widespread that this millionaire named Herman Ulrichs twice dove into shark-infested waters just to prove that they weren't dangerous, and he also offered a $500 reward uh, to anyone who had evidence of a shark attack having taken place in temperate waters. So, uh, despite the fact that there were literally hundreds of witnesses to the two attacks, some experts of the time believed that a shark was not responsible and that they were most likely victims of giant sea turtles, mackerels, or German U-boats, which had launched missiles and... <laughs> blown up their legs, apparently. One scientist, John Treadwell Nichols, who was assistant curator of the Department of Recent Fishes at the American Museum of Natural History, went so far as to examine the body of Charles Bruder and declare definitively that it was an orca whale that was responsible for the attacks. Which is just not cool, because orca whales are cool, and they're just, you know, they're smart and awesome. And they're not just eating people's legs. That's what sharks are doing. Anyway, despite all of the doubt cast upon the possibility of a shark being the culprit of the attacks, the general public was convinced that there was an evil killer shark on the loose. And it was one just evil killer man-hunting shark that was coming for people. 
Still, though, the town of Madawan could not have believed that their small town would be the site of not one, but three more attacks. Now, Madawan is a uh, small town in New Jersey that is located inland and is on a creek. There's no ocean uh, in Madawan. It is now the uh, creek does reach out to the sea, but the waters there are fresh. And now, granted, they are brackish, but, you know, they're not expecting a shark up there. It's fresh water. Anyway, on July 12th, which was six days after the second attack, Thomas Cottrell, a fisherman from Matawan, was on his boat on Matawan Creek, and he saw what he believed to be an eight-foot shark swimming through the fresh waters of the creek. He, um, I guess parked his boat? However, whatever the correct word is, he parked his boat, and he ran through town, attempting to warn people to stay out of the water and telling everyone what he'd seen and that they gotta go do something. But uh, everyone brushed, the sh- brushed him off, because he was running around, he's like, hey, there's a shark in the water. And they're like, my guy, ain't no shark in the water, this is a creek, sharks in the ocean. Sharks don't go in creeks, you moron. So despite his warnings, despite his best efforts, rather, 11-year-old Lester Stilwell and a group of friends weren't even there to hear his warnings because they were already in the creek swimming. And um, ironically, they were naked because they were skinny dipping, which is just funny because, you know, um, our picture of the time is that people were in their crazy, elaborate, skin-covering beach car, but these kids are just naked. So anyway, Lester was dragged under, and the water churned and turned red. And his friends ran into town, still naked and covered in mud, frantically trying to find help. Now, um, a ton of people came from the town to try to uh, rescue Lester, but they didn't think a shark had killed him. They thought, because Lester was epileptic, that he had had a seizure while swimming, and that that caused the water to churn and freaked out the kids, and that he maybe bashed his head on a rock to explain the blood but that he had just drowned, unfortunately. So a couple men, including Watson Stanley Fisher, who was known to be a strong swimmer, dove into the water to try to find the body of poor Lester. And so Fisher comes up, and some of the witnesses say that he actually had Lester's body. That's disputed. But anyway, so he comes up, and a shark slams into his side and bites him on the thigh and just won't let go. And Eventually, men get in there with on a rowboat and beat its head in with the oars before, and then it lets go and swims away. And Fisher died while he was on his way to the hospital. Now, I don't know if Lester's body was ever recovered. I couldn't find any information on that. But that is two dead within an hour. Now, 30 minutes later, downstream, um, a third attack occurs. This guy named Joseph Dunn was swimming with his friends, and he's, like, reaching to climb out of the creek and he's reaching out to a dock so he's about to grab a ladder he's two feet away and he gets pulled under and his friends grab him pull him up and there's a chunk out of his thigh but he survives the attack so shark obviously attacked him he survives that because the bite just fortunately did not sever any of his uh, any of his arteries and so after this obviously shark attack hysteria which is already pretty high goes into maximum overdrive and we got people throwing dynamites into the creek and into the ocean waters, uh, firing guns, patrolling on rowboats, and like just a ton of boats on the creek, in the ocean, on the shoreline, just shooting anything that moved in the water, trolling with nets. We got people with harpoon guns and spear guns, um, just killing hundreds of sharks. It went so far that President Woodrow Wilson got his cabinet 
together to discuss these attacks and how to protect people and pledged his support and the support of the federal government to prevent these attacks. Now, on July 14th, a 7.5-foot-long shark was caught. Uh, remember that Cottrell said that he saw an 8-foot-long shark in the creek. And this shark allegedly contains uh, human flesh in its stomach. However, it wasn't examined by a coroner. It's just what the guy who caught it said. He said there was suspiciously fleshy material in its stomach. People also don't know the exact identity of the shark. Some people claim it was a white shark. Some people claim it was a bull shark, which is important. Uh, because great white sharks can't typically get up into creeks, uh, whereas bull sharks can. But again, more on that later. So, uh, regardless of the identity of the shark or whether it actually contained human flesh, after this one was killed, there are no more shark attacks. And it could be because the beaches all along the shore had equipped a ton of shark attack preventing things like safety netting and had patrols and stuff going out. Um, and also, you know, there's just a bunch of sharks getting murdered. Maybe the sharks over there dipped on up out of there because there's explosions and now they're scared to go near the shore. But it uh, doesn't really matter. There's no more shark attacks that summer. And America's relationship with sharks was just forever changed after this. We started seeing them in political cartoons as bad guys, in uh, actual cartoons as bad guys. We saw political cartoons featuring them as U-boats specifically. And um, our morbid obsession with the creatures just blasted off from there. Scientists were forced to reevaluate their understandings of sharks and oceans in general and they were just baffled that relatively small sharks especially like eight foot long ones could just take humans lights off with no issue eventually these sharks would inspire the book jaws which would become the movie jaws which just every time it's on people are terrified to go into the water but so yeah that's those attacks but you still might have some questions so one was it possible that one shark was really responsible for all these attacks Probably not. It was most likely three different sharks responsible for all five attacks. So like the ones in the creek, that was definitely the one shark who attacked uh, all three people. But the other two, it was probably two different sharks that had gotten them. They were 45 miles apart. You know, there were hundreds of sharks in the water. It's very unlikely to me that one shark did all three. How did a shark end up in a freshwater creek? Now, bull sharks... And some other ones, but bull sharks are the primary, you know, quote-unquote man-eating sharks that are able to do this. Uh, some sharks can go in fresh water. Also, it was a full moon, and the creek does reach out to sea. But the full moon messed with the uh, salinity of the creek, making it double the amount of salt water normally in the freshwater creek. Which meant that a great white shark could have theoretically been the culprit. But just like an average day, a bull shark can survive in completely fresh water. And that is because bull sharks are have salty blood uh, because it contains the amount of salt at seawater. So they can transition between fresh and salt water very easily. And they can also just survive in 100% fresh water. Bull sharks are actually pretty cool. They get their name because of their stocky shape, flat snout and aggressive behavior so basically because if you squint they look and act a little bit like bulls uh, their natural range is from massachusetts to brazil and from morocco to angola they are found in fresh 
bodies of fresh water uh, pretty pretty commonly, including Lake Nicaragua, which is wild because it's just a lake inland and not really access to the ocean. And so at first scientists were stumped by this. They thought that maybe it was a separate species of freshwater shark, but that was ruled out in the 1960s, uh, 1961 specifically, by a taxidermist who confirmed that they had all these same features as ocean sharks. Um, and then scientists thought that they were probably trapped in the lake after flooding or something like that. But again, this was ruled out after sa- uh, they were observed jumping upstream like salmon. Like they were going against the rapids, literal sharks jumping against rapids like salmon, which is just wild to think about and wild to picture. And so in like modern times, sharks have been trapped. Uh, they've been placed, like, hit with trackers like you see on sharkweed, and they've been found in the lake, in the ocean, and back and forth, with some taking as little as 11 days to go back and forth between the two. In the United States, both sharks have been found in Minnesota and Wisconsin as recently as 2006. At first, it was thought that this was the result of Hurricane Katrina, but shark, attack, or shark teeth were found, which actually led to the investigation of... Uh, the creek where the bull shark was found, uh, the bull sharks were found, and the teeth were tested, and they were found to be seven years old. And the sharks that were found, all three of them, were younger than seven years old, which means that sharks had been in there prior to Hurricane Katrina, obviously. And then also, they're found pretty routinely as far north as Illinois, seven hundred miles up the Mississippi River. So it's not it's not great. People have even reported bull sharks in Lake Michigan, but people aren't really sure about that. It's largely thought to be a hoax. I still think it's not impossible, I would say. Maybe someone had one as a pet and then it just grew too big, so they released it and threw it into the lake. So at any given moment, a shark, a bull shark specifically, could be in uh, Lake Michigan and it just dies in the winter. It's not impossible. It's not likely. But, you know, it is possible. And there was actually a reported shark attack in Lake Michigan in the 50s. Um, but no, there's no, like, coroner report or anything, so it's, you can't say for sure that it happened. But yeah, so that's it. That's the shark attacks of 1916. That's my deep dive on bull sharks, and that's it. Thank you for listening to that episode about the shark attacks of 1916. If you did what you're hearing, please give us a rating and review to help us rise up the charts, help us look cool, help us look good out here. And, you know, every review goes a long way. Five stars only, or, you know, maybe you'll wake up with a bull shark in your bathtub. As always, we welcome honest reviews on Instagram, where we can be found at high t underscore obsessed underscore podcast, or Twitter at high to podcast. And we also have a website now. IT Obsessed, and even an email, so that's pretty fancy. So if you want to give us those honest reviews and feedback, I welcome it, but please lie on the, you know, Apple Store reviews everywhere else. So thank you for listening, and until next time, peace out, y'all.